Hey, welcome back everyone to the Slightly Above podcast. This is episode number four in our automotive series. This episode is called Death of a Salesperson. Um, death is, it's, it's a tough and final thing. I think no one really wants to deal with death. I mean, I guess for me, the most important thing about death is it's kind of all in the timing. I mean, <laughs> if you're, if you're a, a young person um, and someone gives you six months to live, that's, that's, that's just awful. That's a terrible thing. Um, if you're, if you tell me that I'm going to be, you know, in my old and gray age and I'll have lived a full life with the amazing family and a legacy behind me, maybe death isn't, isn't such a bad thing. And I'm really focusing more on that archetype of a salesman, that salesman that we think about, you know, from 20 years ago that was really hyper aggressive and maybe had a bad suit um, and had these sales tactics that just put a lot of customers um, on the defense. So don't shoot me, folks. I'm just the messengers and the facts don't lie. Surveys have indicated that customers just don't like the experience of dealing with salespeople at dealerships. Um, Going beyond the salespeople, though, this show is going to focus in on not only salespeople, but the entire dealership experience, looking at the next 15 years and how a modern dealer can reinvent the process in order to succeed in these new times. Um, If you're a dealer, if you're a dealership employee, if you're a vendor in the space, you're going to get a ton of insights over the next hour or so on how to adapt and how to improve your business. So please um, get in, sit down and strap in. Um, Let's go. Uh, Whether you are a small company that needs help navigating complex data requirements for your customers, or if you're a dealer that needs the info and can't get consistency with data or products, Innovate can help you. That's Innovate On Demand, www.innovateod.com. When you're ready to innovate, we'll be ready. This is the Slightly Above Podcast with our ongoing series, Automotive Insights. As always, we have our industry powerhouse, Virtuoso's William Page. Hey, what's happening, Jacob? And Josh Blick. Hello, everyone. And I am their longtime collaborator and today's moderator, Jacob Gomez. Thank you for joining us once again for a dive into the automotive industry and trying to understand this unique sector and its many idiosyncrasies. Now, nothing is more important to any industry or business than sales. Today, we are going to ask the question, are we seeing the death of a salesman? Is the industry evolving in a way that leaves the salesman behind? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, historically, let's talk a little bit about historically, how has the dealer model, the dealership model been threatened um, before? And it's probably important to note that the dealers actually have some legislation on their side. Um, Josh, do you want to just give us a little bit uh, about the the dealership legislation that's in place currently? You're talking about the state franchise laws? That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, every state state gives um, all the different manufacturers um, exclusive monopoly to basically do business. So, what that means is if someone wants to sell a car that's an automotive franchise like Toyota or uh, Honda, or anyone, um, they have to go through those manufacturers and they have to go through those dealers. So, for example, uh, Honda can't sell cars by themselves. Hmm. 
Um, and also an individual business person, like if I decided I wanted to sell new cars, Correct. I could, I would have to become a dealer. I have to become part of the club correct. before I can actually sell new cars in the state of California. That's correct. So yeah, you cannot be a third party uh, sales um, person or company. Uh, you have to be as- affiliated with the franchise. Uh, and in order to sell cars through a franchise, you have to be awarded a dealership franchise from the automotive manufacturer like Toyota or GM or Honda or Ford. Um, obviously, everyone knows the Tesla model. They've gotten around that. Hmm. Um, they don't actually uh, manufacture. They don't combine with a manufacturer that exists. They have their own cars. They've made their own cars. So that's how they got around that is they built their own car. And uh, But, you know, what's worse than that is... The state franchise laws still bar them from making direct sales in many states. That's right. And I believe, I don't, I don't know the exact up-to-date numbers, but I, at least a while ago it was 23 states that Tesla was okay to, to do their um, new vehicle sales in. Right. Yeah. So, and it's been a battle, I think, for them to... They've to had to go into the state and overturn those laws and get an exception made by the courts in those states. And usually when that happens... Um, NADA, National Automotive Dealers Association, and all of their friends, they usually get into court and start trying to overturn Tesla's attempt. And it's happened successfully. It's been a battle for the last 10 years. But generally speaking, Tesla has been um, successful. And, and we're doing the most recent one first, which I think is kind of cool. Um, another thing to note about Tesla is Elon Musk himself has said that at a much higher scale that he may be open to working with the dealership network. That's interesting. Yeah, so I mean, he, I think he's also foreseeing that what, what maybe the OEM saw many years ago, which is building the car is one thing, successfully selling it and servicing it is a whole nother industry, potentially. Um, at least hmm. back, back then it was. Today, Tesla's doing it. Um, are they doing it extremely successfully? Some users, some owners of Teslas would, would maybe differ and would say that the service has been sort of a difficult task or even a debacle, I've heard. Um, so, so having the, you know, the whole dealership model supporting them is something that the OEMs have enjoyed for, for a long uh, period of time. I'll go back even further and say that you know, different OEMs have attempted to sell vehicles um, in the marketplace directly. Um, at various points in time, GM did it. They did a pilot program in Brazil from 2000 to 2006 where they sold vehicles online. They eventually abandoned that experiment um, and they, they cited high cost and difficulty of maintaining the distribution centers and also the online infrastructure. But it was a time, it was 2000 to 2006, which you would argue that maybe the technology wasn't there at the time or maybe the consumers hadn't adapted to a to a really a, a fully digital retail experience. Mm-hmm. Um, another company um, that went through it, Ford Motor Companies, decided um, in the late 90s that they would try to sell OEM direct factory cars on the Ford Retail Network, um, which they later renamed the Ford Auto Collection. And that pilot lasted for two years. Um, they ran it in, a, in a, just a handful of cities. And they, you know, the outcome was they claimed that they lost money um, in that experiment, in that pilot. And they felt that they lost market share in those five markets. They ended up selling back those stores to established dealerships. So in the case of Tesla, we had a success. In the case of GM and Ford, maybe maybe some minor failures. Um, but the most important thing in this history to think about is you know the difference in time timing. 
and timing can be everything. You know, Tesla is operating at a time where um, customers are much more open to the idea of buying a vehicle or buying a major or taking a major purchase online. Well, and and that really raises the question um, in that particular time frame of trust, I think, uh, in the online infrastructure, in everything. I mean, you know, um, anytime you innovate anything, a lot of times the first person through the door uh, ends up with a black eye, right? And and so I wonder if, if that's part of, of what we're, we saw back then, is, is that. Um, but sorry. To no, it's okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I digress. Think so. I, I think that, you know, you could say, uh, here, here's how I would say that. I would say that GM and Ford were maybe a little early. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of companies, if you think back to the time of the dot-com era, uh, if you think back to the time of the dot-com era, there are a lot of companies that attempted to do a lot of things mm-hmm. um, that were disruptive to existing um, infrastructures or existing um, marketplaces. Um, and so they took their shot at the time, but it was probably a little early. Yeah. Um, you know, it took like, for example, you know, companies like Netflix are coming into their own today, whereas they, they took some shots um, in the in the aughts, in the aughts. And they took, you know, they tried to transform um, different aspects of their streaming service around that time. And it, it, it took time for it to gain traction. So GM and Ford, maybe they stopped those pilots preemptively. Maybe they could have been continuing down that road. Um, but for whatever reason, the dealership market is still intact today. Um, however, there are some major threats. And I think that when you think about like streaming technologies or other technologies, the real disruption in my mind is the, the real threat. It comes from the technical side. Um, you want to talk a little bit about some of the technical threats to automotive, Josh? Yeah. I mean, right now, um, well, I'll first say that all of the direct threats to the, the automotive franchise model, which we talked about in the last podcast, have failed. Um, the manufacturers themselves tried to do this and they failed. So um, now I think the biggest threat is Carvana and Vroom and Shift and basically the used car online sales uh, websites. Um, CarMax is another example. They're mostly a brick and mortar store, but you can you can go online. Um, but those are the the major threats to the dealer franchise model because they're selling used cars outside of the whole model. And I put um, those in one bucket, right? Those are kind of the direct sales companies, the new yeah. online, um, highly technical <clears throat> direct sales companies. Um, a couple of other categories. I think we're going to deep dive into that direct sales model. Sure. And let's do that in just a second. But to get it out of the way, there are a couple other um, technology disruptors um, in the space. Um, one is this idea of mobility as a service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're talking about Uber, we're talking about Lyft, we're talking about hire car, we're talking about, you know, the, the biggest use case I think is that urban dwellers um, are finding it less and less of, of a good idea um, to purchase a new vehicle, a personal vehicle. Um, it may be a better value proposition for them just to utilize mobility as a service so that they don't have to have their own insurance. They don't have to pay for parking fees. They don't have to pay for maintenance of the vehicle. The value proposition and the, and the cost difference in their mind, you know, it's, it's, more and more, um, it's more and more palatable for them to use a mobility as a service solution rather than having their own personal vehicle. So that's one big one. And I believe that a whole show can be devoted 
to talking about how how that operates and what the exact threat is. Um, it's, it's maybe slightly undefined now, but the dealers know that this is going to be cutting into their new vehicle sales margins over the next 15 years. I think the when you're talking about mobility as a service, you know, in particular the subscription model, uh, the new subscription companies that are out there, mm-hmm. Hire Car is one of them, um, and there's a few others, but these subscription services are all plugging into the fact that fleet sales and sales to technology companies that are serving Lyft and Uber uh, are going to increase. And right now in the industry, you have about 90% of all new car sales that are going through retail and about 10% going through fleet. And that's been pretty pretty um, stable for the last 20, 30 years. This is going to change. So mobility um you know uber lyft all these different subscription companies they're going to make they're going to even that out so maybe in 10 15 years it's going to be 50 50. right so that's a humongous shift in in who's selling the car it changes how they sell a car right it's going to change the way that a dealership actually operates because you know you don't really need as much uh as many boots on the ground when you're selling large fleet correct and you know the thing is that right now the fleet the, the dealers that are dealing with fleet um, are, are doing fairly well, but Uber and Lyft have contracts with rental car companies. So mm-hmm. Avis, right. right, all these different um, rental car companies, they're the ones who are, are providing the most vehicles to Uber and Lyft, not the dealers. So the dealers are missing out on all this business currently, and if they continue to be asleep at the wheel, no <laughs> pun intended, they won't uh, be able to, to make up for it. Well, speaking of asleep at the wheel, you know, another, another major category on, on the technology side is the autonomous vehicle. Um, you know, not, you can be asleep at the wheel. And in cases of Tesla, we've seen where folks are asleep at the wheel and something bad happens. So we right. may be early. Yeah. We may be early for yeah. autonomous vehicles. But also, you know, what, what, what I'm reading is that we're actually closer to having autonomous vehicles than, than we all may expect. Yeah. Um, some of the research indicates that in the next five years, these may become like a viable commercial solution reality. Tesla, you know, GM has partnered with Lyft and they're putting uh, autonomous vehicle bolts and field tests in 2018, 2019. Um, Ford has plans to introduce self-driving taxis in 2021. Um, you know, Nissan, Renault, Mitsubishi has an intention to also have their own driverless taxis. AutoNation is having a deal with Google's Waymo, um, which are self-driving minivans. So a lot of this stuff is just around the corner. And I actually think that, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive, but the autonomous vehicle technology, a lot of people think they're going to take over the taxis and all this. And um, I actually think it's going to grow the the personal vehicle purchasing appetite of the American consumer. So you're going to have a, a period where people are going to trade in their their old car for the newer autonomous car because they actually want a car to go to the grocery store and pick up the groceries for them. Right. Or they want to go have the car drop their kids off at school. I These wonder- are cool things that their current car can't do, and it's going to actually drive a whole new sales cycle and turnover that will be much faster than the current turnover of a, of a used car. I wonder if eventually sale. we'll have legislation like cash for clunkers. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, the government yeah. actually wants to get those, you know, it's not, it's, it's not always a great thing. If autonomous vehicles work correctly, then it's a much better solution 
than having some of the folks who are actually driving the cars driving them today. So um, let's take it back to how this impacts a dealer. Um, I think that the, the easiest way to think about or the, one of the easiest conclusions to make is that using driver-assisted systems is going to decrease the profitability of a dealership service and parts um, business mm -hmm. um, just because the computer's going to not push that car in the same um, way. The computer's not going to crash um, as much, at least. Um, and, you know, that's a highly lucrative, high-margin business, the collision um, department within, within the dealership. So based on some of my readings, you know, service parts and collision can be, you know, 30 to 50% of a dealership's profit center. Um, if you take that away or if you greatly decrease that, um, that's highly impactful um, for a dealership profit. With autonomous vehicles, there, there's a trust factor that has to be adapted, right? Sure. We have to trust that they're, they're going to keep us safe. We have to trust that they're going to get our kids to school. And, you know, I, I think that you're absolutely right. This is, this is going to have a huge disruption. It could cause, like you uh, pointed out, Josh, uh, that people want to get this vehicle and adapt it to their own lives and have their own. Well, I think the dealers, there's going to be the increase of fleet, like we just talked about, right? There's going to be more fleet sales to drivers who are working with um, you know, the different services, Uber and Lyft. And if those aren't drivers at all, right? Yeah. The drivers are, are robots, they're AI technology. Then they're selling the cars to Uber and Lyft directly, yeah. right? So either way, the dealer is going to sell or should sell to Uber and Lyft and the different services. But on, on the other hand, there's always going to be private individuals who want cars. And I, I don't okay. think that's going away. I, I don't foresee that. You don't foresee that ever going ever. Okay. Yeah, because I want one. I want one to go to the store and mm -hmm. and, yeah. and do all my errands for me. And I want to, if I want to drive somewhere, I want to do it in my car. And I'm sitting in the back working on my laptop, having my coffee, yeah. right, relaxing. That's a great thing. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the greatest I, things I can think of. Nobody likes traffic. Yeah. Right? In, in no way do I think you're wrong. It's just more yeah. about I look at this, you know, ever since the the cell phone and everybody doing everything on their cell phones. Where you say, oh, I need to go somewhere. I just order a car. It shows up. I get in. I go. I never owned it. Yeah. So that service becomes way more rel uh, prevalent than we think. And therefore, what's the point of anyone having their own car? If you live in a city, I <clears throat> totally, we, I totally agree. I think we all, I, and I think that the research um, supports it. That urban dwellers, I think they're they're thinking just like you, Jacob, which mm -hmm. is from a value proposition because the city is going to have other inherent costs that people in more rural areas don't have, That's like true. the parking fees. And just to have a garage, you know, in the city to, to, um, to store your car is going to cost extra money. So okay. I think that um, in that economy that it makes a lot of sense, maybe to Josh's point, when you've got to drive, you know, seven miles to get just back and forth to the store or to the coffee shop, that all adds up, right? You, yeah. You're not going to want to take an Uber or, or a Lyft or to, to, that won't be a... Or if you're commuting. So yeah. if you're commuting, yeah. normal, say, in the Bay Area or any other large city, you're commuting an hour mm -hmm. each way or 30 minutes each way. Yeah, you could you could call a car service to pick you up every day or you could have your own car. And in the you know autonomous world, you no longer have to have the hassle of driving through traffic. Sure. You can be sitting in the back enjoying your 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 morning reading the paper, it's a great thing, if you ask me. It's like taking the BART without having to deal with the people on the BART. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why I think Americans are going to want to buy these these cars. I mean, it's, and also the electric uh, revolution. Yeah. These are, for me, you know, when the electric vehicles come out and they're, they're actually legit 
100% by all the manufacturers are selling them at normal prices, right? And everyone has the, the, the plugins in their house. When that occurs, um, I think people are going to want to buy these, these electric cars. They're going to want to buy the autonomous cars. And th- these are going to fuel purchase events, you know, large-scale um, cycling of a, a used car uh, inventory into, into buying these new vehicles. And the dealerships are going to profit off of that. Especially the, the combination of EV and AV. Yeah. Uh, when, when that event is, like, to Josh's point, when, when it's proven to work, and it's it's um, the cost is you know it's not a hundred thousand dollar Tesla that you're buying it's something that you can buy that's comparable um, at least close to what you could buy today in the in the um, mid sedan range yeah um, then it becomes like almost a no brainer and I think that even maybe like what they did with the um, Prius and, and the EVs early on that the government steps up and adds in some subsidies for you to go ahead and make that choice and that's going to actually drive. Um, some some business to the dealers at least for a time. Yeah, so some disruptive technologies, or I mean, we don't even need to call them disruptive. Some innovative technologies are going to actually benefit the sales of the dealer. There's a lot of things that are forcing the decline of new car sales for dealers, and that yeah. we're, we're going to get into that. But for the last ten years, everyone's been predicting the decline of new car sales for dealers. It hasn't happened. They. They're yeah, increasing even the, the today. The profit margins may be slightly decreasing, but the actual, um, the count, the number, the volume, I guess. Yeah, the gross compression on right. every sale is, it's true. They, they've, they've gone down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for, for a number of factors, you know, the... Well, let's get in, let's transition yeah. and let's say that, you know, these for these direct sales companies, and let's let's go deep dive into a few of them, you know, that's that's the risk here over the next 15 years is that the new vehicle sales, the used vehicle sales... Um, the volume starts to get gobbled up by these upstarts, um, these companies who are doing it better. They're selling it online and they're doing it better um, than the dealers themselves. And it's been prevalent. I guess what I'll say first, the first thing to say to get this out of the way, if you're not aware of it, is most of the activity, most of the volume today is in the used segment. So no one's really doing this or, or not a lot of these companies are focused on the new um, side of it, largely because legislation and, and other reasons. Yeah, they can't get around uh, right. the, the new car sales monopoly, which exists for the dealers. So they have to focus on where they can, which is in use. Right, but yeah. these companies are basically creating models that can be applied to new. And when the time sure. is right, um, that that this will become an issue for um, dealerships. So let's get right into it. Um, and let's define it first, right? These are used car sellers or car sellers that allow customers to buy, sell, trade on an online platform, as well as providing financing options and delivery services, meaning that they can take the entire process of the deal and make it happen online, not just a piece of it. You know, we've had companies in the past that did a piece, mm-hmm. um, but the new style company, and let's name names, we have Room, we have Carvana, and we have a company called Modal that we're gonna, we're gonna do a, kind of a dive into today. Um, and let's do that, Josh, or not Josh, Jacob, do you want to go ahead and start with Vroom? Yeah, so for Vroom, um, just to kind of give a perspective of the size of the company and everything, it has about 700 employees total, uh, estimated at about $788 million annual revenue, and is privately owned. Uh, so the company was founded in August of 2013, and they really got their funding just through venture capital and private equity and, and everything, and they focused... One of their main issues was the refurbishment of the vehicle that they were receiving. So, so they do buy as well as sell. 
um, for, for used vehicles. And what they found was if you have a used vehicle, you need to make sure you can, you can uh, sell it with confidence and offer a guarantee to those who are, who are purchasing it. And so that was one of the things that they really um, got right. A couple things to note um, from my research, you know, um, Forbes list of the hottest e-commerce startups in, in 2015, 2016. Also, Paul Hennessy was previously the CEO of Priceline, is the CEO of Room. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got some pedigree. The compelling argument for used and going into a dealership oftentimes is getting that kind of certified pre-owned warranty and getting the right inspection and, and feeling comfortable with that used vehicle. The dealers have done a great job of making you feel a little bit more comfortable. So Vroom has kind of also offered their own competitive warranty and inspection program as well as a refurbishing program that makes people feel a lot more comfortable with that used purchase. Anything about Vroom, Josh, that you wanted to bring up? Um, yeah, <clears throat> the number one thing for Vroom, and this also includes Carvana, is that they are the epitome of a frictionless purchasing experience. So it's online. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do everything from the comfort of your own home. This is what the consumers want, and this is kind of the future. And they've tapped into that, um, albeit only in the, in the used car part of the whole equation. Mm -hmm. They have effectively tapped into it. That's why if you go and talk to dealers, they're talking constantly about Carvana, right? And then a proxy for Carvana is this future distant threat from Amazon where it will somehow transition over into new cars yeah. and parts and all these other issues, right? So they're doing something right if the dealers are talking about it, and that's they're selling cars online from top to bottom, soup to nuts, and they're doing it successfully. Offering the warranty and the delivery is another big thing that I think people love, uh, that they'll, they'll deliver it right to you. You don't ever have to leave and someone shows up with the keys and knocks on the door. I think Carvana, if we're going to focus in on Carvana, I'd say like they're the epitome of a, of a company that's pivoted well. I mean, I think initially when they came on the scene in 2013, it was about the vending machine, right? And about this idea of getting your vehicle in a unique way, having it delivered to you, um, changing the way that, you know, that, that buying process of a used vehicle looks from the outside in, and they pivoted quickly into doing all this online and doing it better you know, than, than what the dealers were able to do and offering pieces of the puzzle that were maybe missing in the past, including the financing and insurance, um, into a really compelling product. Yeah, and they're really eating into the marketplace. So for example, I think in 2018, Carvana was listed at number eight on all of the automotive retail sellers for used vehicles volume. I think that and in my research, you know, they've been dubbed the Amazon of auto, right? Yeah. And in, in 2018, they sold roughly 95,000 used vehicles online and they did $2 billion in revenue. So this is not, this is not some small thing. No. This is a huge endeavor. I mean, they're right behind uh, Sonic and Hendrick Auto Groups uh, in terms of overall sales. CarMax is still number one for, for used for sales. Used, yeah. Um, but then you go into the heavy hitters of the industry, Penske, AutoNation, Lithia, Group One, Sonic, Hendrick, and then boom, there's Carvana, right? So they're, you know, within a couple of years, they're right at the top of the list hit, hitting with the heavy hitters. So yeah, uh, just to give the overview for Carvana, they did uh, $3.4 in annual revenue as of last year, have 3,800 
uh, employees and were founded in 2011. So two years before Vroom, uh, but with the same model and quite a bit bigger, like you said, really changing the expectation, raising the bar. I think that's all great stuff, but I was going to pivot a little bit into another company that I think is doing it well. And I think that we've brought up this idea of, you know, dealerships can become more like Target to compete with this threat. And one of the early companies that seems, you know, to fit into that was actually um, CarMax. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're a used vehicle seller that has, you know, they have the um, brick and mortar, so to speak. Yeah. So it's not truly an online experience. You, you can go find a CarMax, you know, within probably 100 miles of where you are, depending on where you are in the country. Mm -hmm. um, so you can visit their location. But if you also look at what they've done online, they've kind of, you know, they kind of blur the line between a pure brick and mortar and an online experience where they, they do a good in both, on both sides. Yeah. And that's kind of that target model of how Target competed with Amazon. Um, the, you know, the big box store Target who does, they've got brick and mortar. Yeah. Um, they do that really well. They've got great marketing. And also, they you know have transformed the company to be an on online retail experience as well. So yeah. CarMax has that sort of built in. Yeah, CarMax has done a great job. Uh, the largest used you know uh, company, like Josh said, and they've really defined I think what a lot of dealerships need to see, which is you know adapting, and and that's where we get uh, to to modal, right? Is, sure. is is they now are kind of trying to offer that that. Um, option to dealerships where, oh, hey, you don't have to... It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut. shortcut. Sure. Exactly. So, so, you know, the dealers, let's face it, you know, they're brick and mortar and they're, you know, they're adding on utility from their software providers mm -hmm. and their so software providers had not been able to give them the ability to sell direct online. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't, it wasn't a thing except for maybe some boutique experiences. Um, however, um, and I think his name is Aaron Crane, he founded Modal Commerce and I believe it was Drive... Drive Motors. Drive first. Motors, yeah. They just changed the name. They changed the name, but the idea is that this is a piece of software that can go on to any dealership website and basically add a buy button. Yeah. Right? And also, in the, within that buy button, it also takes care of the, the F&I part of it. It takes care of... Um, the trade-in. The trade-in. It takes care yeah. of a number of things that are the complex um, pieces of a deal and what have prevented you know dealers from being able to to you know, go from the cradle to the grave on a, on a transaction of a vehicle, they've solved that problem. Um, the other you know, highlights when you're talking about modal are they've had some pretty big backers. They've been in Y Combinator. They've got Peter Thiel's group um, as backers. And then they also have some high-profile clients. I believe that they're helping Asbury Automotive Group um, do online sales and transform the business um, to make it um, a lot more... Um, open to these transactions online. So I think they're also working with Larry H. Miller Group. Um, there are some rumors that they're working with Group One. It's not substantiated 100%, but um, we have to also distinguish that Modal is very different than the Vrooms and the Carvanas, because yeah. Modal is working with the dealers, Correct. right? Whereas Correct. Carvana and uh, all the other uh, used car outlets online are working for themselves and against the dealers more or less. Yeah. So Modal is trying to work within the system, which that's their big bet, is they're saying, okay, the dealer franchise model is going to survive, and we're betting all in on making the dealers the ones who are going to win this online experience. And, and what's interesting is, is in previous you know, conversations, podcasts we've had, we've talked about a Silicon Valley disruptor coming in and doing something, right? 
And in many ways, this is not disruptor, but this is actually an assistance uh, where sure. rather than coming in trying to do their own thing, they said, oh, hey, we see a need. Let's let's come in and help. Um, you know, because they're they're, out really, of San they're really smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean yeah. that's the like smart thing to do. They're not trying to, to fight the current system. They're trying to assist well, it. In go, let's go back into like recent, you know, recent events. I think you know some of the the last round of this technology kind of um, advancement that was threatening to the dealers was around the new vehicle sales around like um, discounts, um, like True Car, yeah, um, and Woo Woo vehicles or Car Woo, excuse Car me. Woo. Um, there were a few. There were a lot of different options um, around this, and most, for the most part, the dealers saw the technology as somewhat hostile. However, those companies were trying to position themselves as a way to, you know, gain more sales. Even though the margins were compressed, they were able to sell a little bit more. Um, I don't know if they ever got there where they were truly, you know, looked at as an ally. But the genius part of Modal is that they can truly be looked upon as an ally. Um, because they're just enabling a piece of business, an uh, um, omni-channel experience that you don't currently have. They're opening up that online market for you. True Car is actually the kind of the, the first one that, that got into this dilemma of work with the dealer or work sort of outside the dealer. Yeah. And um, they had, a, they had a quite a struggle when they first came out. But eventually they came to the conclusion that they needed to work with the dealer and be dealer friendly in order to succeed. Um, and now Modal is completely diving into the deep end of that theory, which is they didn't even start off in any way or any shape even thinking about being hostile to the dealer. They were immediately trying to sell themselves as people who could help the dealer get through this very you know, difficult technological you know, time where they're moving online. Well, and, and so I'm gonna ask, I have two questions. So first one, with, with modal in this model, because this, like we already said, really could take the place of a salesperson for the most part, but I wonder at what um, capacity they need a salesperson on the other end of the line to talk to someone if they have questions, if they, you know, so it really more of a support role, but it's kind of replacing the Well, the let's, let's, and I think it's a great question. I think that it fits into our topic group where we're talking about the future of automotive dealerships, okay. how they look, how they operate, what their cost centers will be, because I think that all of these technologies that we're talking about have the, um, you know, it's, it's just going to happen um, once these technologies are adopted, that it's going to change the way that the dealers operate. Yeah. And so if more of the transaction is taking place online, that kind of changes the, the type of folks that you need at your dealership. And one thing I'll say, we'll get into it, but the thing that I'll say for now to just make it a really quick answer is think more like the Apple Genius Bar where you've got mm -hmm. folks there that are experts of, you know, of your products. However, they don't have to spend all of their time conducting the actual sale. Yeah. Right? yeah. They're, they're more like just information. They're for information purposes. And when you want to make the transaction, it's as simple as grabbing an iPad, clicking a few buttons, entering your name and your pertinent details, and the transaction is done. There's no longer this drawn-out negotiation, yeah. which I think it's a really good, I, I think that's a great segue. I'll, I'll say this before, though. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to add on the technology dis disruptors or the emerging technology side of things before we transition? Well, there's a lot of other disruptors, but we don't need to talk about it today. And I think what yeah. I'd say is we may have an episode that yeah. kind of drills into uh, the, the whole ecosystem of emerging technology platforms that yeah. are out there beyond what we've, what we've covered today. <laughs>
Well, that definitely is a wrap for part one, but just remember, we are just scratching the surface. Next week, we'll be putting out part two, where we will focus on the customer perspective. We'll also share some expert predictions, and we will take a look inside the numbers in terms of the decline of financial performance. And then finally, we'll kind of give our overview of the future best practices and what the dealership of the future might look like. Thank you so much for tuning in. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye.